Why X Matters is recorded live in the CJMU studios in downtown Winnipeg on Treaty 1 territory, the original lands of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Red River Metis. Welcome to Why X Matters, a program of the Winnipeg Foundation, where we talk to a panel of industry-leading experts about why trust in institutions, sense of belonging, and civic engagement have been on the decline. In this four-part podcast series, we will unpack the Winnipeg Foundation's 2022 Vital Signs Report to try to spark conversations about how we can work together to restore trust, heal divides, and inspire change. I'm your host and moderator, Nolan Bicknell. So let's just get right to it. I'm going to introduce everyone first, uh, and we'll start with Cecil Rossner. He's the adjunct professor at the University of Winnipeg in the Rhetoric, Writing, and Communications Department. Cecil has been a journalist for more than four decades and currently teaches investigative journalism. He has worked in print and broadcast journalism, and his next book, called Manipulating the Message, is due to be released by Dundurn Press in October. Cecil, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, Nolan. Nice to be here. Next, I would like to welcome Ian Wilcox. Ian is the director, executive director of Clinic Community Health which is headquartered in downtown Winnipeg, offering a broad range of health and mental health programs and services throughout Manitoba. A dedicated lifelong Manitoban, Ian is fervently passionate about community health and believes in the power of civic engagement to pave the way for a more just and caring society. Ian, thank you very much for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. And our final panelist is Molly McCracken, director of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives Manitoba. Molly is the chair of Molly is also the chair of Make Poverty History Manitoba Provincial Committee and a member of the Climate Action Team Manitoba. She led the Vital Signs 2022 Indicator Quantitative Research Team and has been honored to serve the community as a leader in the nonprofit and public sectors for the past 20 years. Molly, thank you for being here. Great to be here, Nolan. All right, we got the intros out of the way. Let's get right into it. So we're focusing on Winnipeg Vital Signs 22. 2022 Key Findings Report. You can find that at winnipegvitalsigns.org, all one word, winnipegvitalsigns.org. And that report found that Winnipeggers have a general lack of confidence in all three levels of governments, major corporations, healthcare, and media. Um, I don't often love the term the media, but I might say that a few times in this, uh, Cecil, so apologizes, apologies to that. But we're going to, the first question is all about industry landscapes, and we're going to hear each of your perspectives when it comes to your perspective industry. So Cecil, have you seen evidence of a decline in trust in the media, sorry to use that, over the past five years? And if so, how has that affected what you do uh, when it comes to teaching and the book that you're writing and just everything that you're working on these days? Uh, sure. Have I seen evidence? Yes, I have. Um, you know. We've all heard the term fake news. Let's put that on the table, mm -hmm. maybe uh, right at the beginning. It used to be, like years ago, it used to be those ridiculous headlines you saw at the supermarket uh, checkout on uh, disreputable type newspapers. Now that term is bandied about uh, very, very frequently. Anyone who's in the media gets this thrown at them, uh, actually, repeatedly. Um, and for a number of reasons, I think. I mean, there is a lot of distrust out there. Uh, not just of media, but other institutions, as, as, you, as we're framing this conversation. Um, there's political considerations, too. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, you can't talk about the term fake news without mentioning Donald Trump. Of course. He, he, um, he popularized it. Uh, in his definition, fake news is anything he doesn't like that appears in the media. Um, 
and that has I think the groundwork for that was was sown even before the Trump era and a lot of it comes about through people who try to undermine faith in um, scientific science generally or or factual things for their own political purposes um, so that's a bit of a problem and because it's been popularized so much by Donald Trump and then a lot of other politicians north and south of the border and in Canada have taken that up um, that's de that's a definite it's turned into a definite material problem for the media and uh, we get a lot of uh, in the media um, you know, I spent more than 30 years at the CBC, and, and you could just see some of the erosion of, of trust. People simply don't believe, a lot of people simply don't believe what you're reporting, um, and that's, that's become a problem. And um, I think the rise of social media has also mm. contributed to this. Like, everyone's a commentator, everyone has an opinion, everyone tries to throw facts out, so-called facts out. And the way a lot of people consume social media these days is that there there doesn't seem to be a differentiation between reading something from a reputable source and reading something from someone something cooked up in someone's basement without any sources or facts or anything else at their disposal so all of these things are kind of existential threats i would say to media these days um, there are things that are being done about it i, th I think during the pandemic um, that's when the situation got very, very acute. There was so much disinformation and misinformation being spread about many aspects of uh, vaccines and, and mm -hmm. other aspects related to the pandemic. Um, and, and media ended up being attacked. I, I, I think uh, science in general ended up being attacked. Um, it's led to a lot of cynicism out there. Um, that I don't think is that productive. Mm. I, I do think there are things that media can do and that society can do in general to combat this, but I think in terms of the general landscape, that's what I would say is the issue right now. Yeah, we will get to solutions a little bit later in the show, but that's a beautifully stated uh, sort of state of the union of, of the current media landscape. You mentioned vaccines, you mentioned a little bit of science in there, so we can um, shift to Ian. Same question, from a healthcare perspective, there's been so much mis- and disinformation out there. So how has trust in our many overlapping uh, medical systems changed, eroded, evolved over the last five years from your perspective at clinic? Yeah, thanks so much. I, I would say um, Cecil nailed it, <laughs> um, for sure. And, and that's had a tremendous impact. And I would say that the existential threat uh, that Cecil speaks about to the media is an existential threat to our uh, ideals and aspirations for democracy as a whole. Uh, and that's really, really having a, a pretty significant impact on, uh, on individuals and, and communities. Mm -hmm. uh, no surprise, the past five years have been pretty challenging uh, for the healthcare sector as a whole. For those that are working in it, uh, that are working in it, and for sure for those uh, folks who are trying to access healthcare, mm. uh, and those who already um, face systemic barriers and discrimination, in particular, when people aren't able to access the services that they need when they need them, and in the way that they need to access them, that is safe for them, that has a very direct impact on their health and their well-being, and uh, of 
their loved ones and of course then uh, their trust in the systems and the institutions that are at least in theory set up to serve them are uh, are are we're seeing a decrease in that right. uh, the pandemic as you know was alluded to earlier had a pretty significant impact in so many ways the isolation that folks uh, were experiencing the, the the fear the financial impacts the fear about health um, and restrictions on where people could go, what they could do, how they could do it. Um, things that most of us, yeah, I would say almost all of us, uh, have never experienced before and could never have imagined happening, happened, uh, right. you know, when the pandemic hit. And uh, that happened when our health system here in Manitoba was already struggling. Uh, to be able to respond to the needs of Manitobans and, and those coming into our province. It created a perfect storm where disinformation and misinformation could flourish. And, uh, you know, that included dubious and at times very dangerous treatment uh, decisions that folks were making to the vaccine skepticism that we saw. And ultimately, I think, uh, resulted in the occupation of our country's capital mm. city and uh, and the protests and occupations that we saw across the country. Again, things we always equated with other countries, couldn't imagine it here in Canada, and we saw it. Yeah. And, uh, and the pandemic created that perfect storm. Uh, I, I would say central to those challenges um, has been the issue about access and about equity. And as I said before, in particular for folks who are marginalized by uh, systemic barriers, discrimination and racism, um, when folks can't access the service that they need, um, that has a direct impact on their individual and their collective health. Um, and then I would also say, you know, sort of at, at the same time as, as we've been seeing uh, the impacts of the pandemic, uh, we've also seen very real examples of the systemic racism and discrimination that exists in our health systems mm -hmm. and the harms. And for so long, we've been able to, for some crazy reason turn a blind eye to it it doesn't happen it's not systemic racism it's individuals it's you know it's an individual who um, but we can't do that anymore I mean you know from Brian Sinclair here at HSC uh, a number of years ago to Joyce Ashaquan like there's just no question that systemic racism exists um, and so when when we have to address those issues um, they're difficult <laughs> to try to have those conversations in a way um, that allows for uh, a safe, respectful discourse amongst people. And it, it creates uh, further further distrust in the systems and the institutions. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would say that, you know, for Indigenous people and, and uh, racialized folks and others here in Canada, they probably haven't had that trust in the systems to begin with and, and for good reason. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> so much to unpack there. Thank you for, for all of that. And I, I, I was thinking about that exact thing, like the, the lack of trust in the medical system for a subset of our population is very justified because of the you know, systemic issues that they've faced for decades now. Mm -hmm. And we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later as well, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll move over to Molly McCracken. So have you seen, like we're, we're talking a little bit about what can be done when it comes to systemic barriers and, and policy is one way to try to address those situations. So maybe just give us a, a brief overview of, of the last five or so years from your perspective 
Um, have you seen evidence in the lack of trust in, in institutions and in individuals and in organizations and in the healthcare system and in media and everything? What, what's your perspective? Yeah, great question. <laughs> Big one. Well, you know, the trend in lack of trust has been longer than the past five years. Sure. It's been a trend for um, several decades, actually. And so, um, you know, it was really a pleasure to be involved in the Vital Science Project, and I urge the listeners to look at the whole project because there's uh, many indicators there, like statistics. Uh, is a, indicators is a fancy word <laughs> for numbers. Um, that tell a, a story, and another part of that story is rising income inequality. So you can trace a trend between uh, the gap between the rich and the poor with increased distress of institutions because those institutions are not taking care of the people that they're intended to take care of. And so, you know, on top of that, COVID, the isolation, people being out of work, the stress, the mental health um, consequences of that, you know, um, how to access food if you're very low income. And now we have the affordability crisis, of course, with the high food prices and everything else, high rents. Um, so, you know, that is all... Um, very challenging for folks so I think we're not you know I'm not surprised to see this distrust um, and I think it's a challenge for our governments um, to be able to um, you know lead for all the people mm. and so you know at the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, we take a political economy uh, approach. We work with academics. We are connected to over 30 academics at all the universities here in uh, Manitoba um, who publish with us. And, you know, if one of the economists were here, uh, they would say, you know, this all started this uh, income inequality back um, in the 80s with the Reagan and Thatcher areas, with the rise of neoliberalism, which is the shrinking of the welfare state, um, and the state stopped redistributing wealth um, and our social service systems aren't working they're siloed there's lots of critiques of that um, and to the point of the federal government stops building social housing we see the rise of homelessness and then we see people being very frustrated that nothing's actually mm -hmm. happening to address this problem so we have a, a lack of trust and then I think you know to the point of the rise of social media and Donald Trump when people are very economically insecure or they're not seeing their um, incomes improve in terms of like white working class folks um, then they might uh, latch on to certain theories that they find online um, and uh, might not be socially connected and so you know that you know is part of what researchers are finding is one of the explanations for all of this um, and so political engagement is incredibly uh, important but it's challenging to do it in this era where people are more fragmented than ever in terms of where they get their sources of information um, and so, yeah, what what we've been tracking at the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives is the changes in income inequality. And I also um, feel really privileged to be part of a community here in Manitoba that there are some amazing activists and community-based organizations like K-Clinic that are doing great work on the ground and really connecting with communities. So I know we'll get a chance to talk about that. Um, and also, you know, grassroots groups here, the Black Lives Matter protest during COVID was massive here at the legislature. You know, black people leading that and people of color, um, indigenous people leading these engagement movements like just recently um, with the protests outside the Brady landfill mm -hmm. promoting and missing indigenous women and girls so there is that engagement but we need our governments to show progress on the issues those people are raising and that's where I think trust can be built up again. Uh, Cecil, I'll, I'll shift to you like what what do you tell your students 
about reporting about folks who have lost it? Like, how do you interview someone who doesn't trust you? You know, like what? How do you how do you teach your students about the reporting process and the journalistic process when there's been such a large percentage of our population that has lost faith in that institution? I'll answer that first by telling you about a cartoon I saw recently. Okay, so in the first panel. It, it was a media person on TV, and, and so the first panel, they say, well, uh, on this topic that we have at hand today, we're going to go to this world-renowned expert, right. and that'll be our first interview. And then in the second bubble, it says, and in the interests of fairness and balance, we're going to speak to a complete idiot. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I think there's a lot of truth to that, because uh, too often the media has had this idea that in the interest of being fair and balanced. Um, the both sides are. Yeah, and, and there's false, a lot of media outlets, reputable media outlets are now starting to recognize that there's an issue of false balance. So, you know, take the classic case of, you know, the decades long lobby by the tobacco industry to try to convince us all that smoking wasn't a, a terrible for you. <laughs> or, or really what they were trying to convince everyone was that there should be some doubt. Like the science isn't quite in. Actually, in, in the book you referenced, I, I go into this and some of these other cases in great detail because the, the many of the first credible scientific papers on the dangers of of nicotine and tobacco came out in the early 1950s and yet the tobacco industry was successful in delaying legislation for decades by sowing doubt and the media were often complicit in that by affording those points of view equal weight with the world-renowned experts in the field so i think that's one thing that I tell students about and media outlets should pay some attention to. And, and the other is, you know, one of the good things about the Donald Trump era is that reporters started to actually fact check everything that mm. he said. Some reporters made their living cataloging all the lies. In real time too. In, in, often in real time. I, so it's not just Donald Trump that needs to be fact checked. Everything needs to be carefully fact checked. And another thing that I go into in, the, in, in my book and, and in my thinking of for the longest time is that to, because of what's happened with media over the last number of years, like the, the, the ranks of media and reporters are shrinking mm -hmm. and the ranks of communications and publicists are increasing. And so it's easier for powerful interests to get their messages into the media and so i think one thing i tell my students is don't rely on press releases um that can be a starting point for some of your thinking on things but uh, all too often newsrooms are so stretched and so small and have to feed so many platforms that anybody's message that flows into the newsroom simply gets um magnified and media need to do a better job of that yeah just the copy paste okay they we will put this out send it out it's good to go because they're just so stretched and stressed that like that's how they get their deadlines met because they have so much to do in so little time even even seemingly um, reputable things like say a scientific paper or a press release from a drug manufacturer uh, about some fantastic new pill that is now on the market that may help cure X, Y, or Z has to be treated with the utmost type of scrutiny because there's 
there's pretty powerful interests out there trying to push various agendas. And we need a strong media to try to keep that into check. Yeah, very well said. So, Molly, how has the conversation shifted around uh, your work? Like, are you noticing when you're speaking with people, is the conversation changed? Is the discourse changed? Or is it more so people just uh, are hearing what they say and, and, and hearing what is being said and forming their opinion on that without much critical thought or like maybe just expand on, on how misinformation has changed the discourse in your work. Well, it hasn't, it hasn't. Um, so um, for those who might not know, the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives does research and commentary. We also uh, publicize uh, research from academics um, across the country. And um, right now we're hosting a seven-year social sciences humanities research council that's actually the fifth one that our office has hosted. Um, this one's with Shauna McKinnon at the University of um, Winnipeg. So we have a lot of um, bright minds and uh, sharp people um, connected with our office and doing work with our office. So, you know, we continue to do the bread and butter of what a research institute uh, has to do, which is solid research, uh, peer-reviewed, um, checking our facts and sourcing and everything else. Um, and so that hasn't changed. I think what we are doing is innovating more in terms of instead of just being a think tank, a think and communicate and do tank, <laughs> and the changes in charitable status from the federal government that are, were actually brought on by a audit of um, by CRA of our group and Suzuki and Amnesty and a number of others, um, which changed the federal law that says charities can um, have a larger mandate as long as you're nonpartisan, of course, um, or to be political associated with your um, your mission and vision because we can't achieve our mission and vision um, unless we advance our research and that's by getting involved in policy debates, um, educating the public and um, having conversations with people. So yeah, and then I, I think you know when uh, the occupy occupation of um, uh, Ottawa took place and the occupation here, we did react immediately by doing rapid response. We're doing more of that to s call out far-right ideas mm. um, and associations with anti-freedom, with fascism, and name that, and connect it with community groups as we often do in coalitions. So there's a wonderful group that formed that we were a part of. We put on a forum on the cost of living to talk about the real issues of people who are really struggling with getting by, um, how uh, wages have stagnated. We still don't have 10 days of paid sick leave after this pandemic, which is, you know, we should be talking about those tangible material um, public policies that people need, you know, working everyday paycheck to paycheck people need to improve them. So we've kept doing that. Um, and then we hope that, you know, our actions and work uh, speak for ourselves um, in, in this context. Have there been instances where the work that you've done or, or the research that you've done has been misconstrued or, or misunderstood? And how does that make you feel if it, if it ever happens? Or what are you doing to sort of try to, um, try to engage journalists and engage the public in, in some of the, the research and the data but it's a, it's a separate skill itself to parse through data and figure out what is relevant and what isn't. But have there been instances where the data was misconstrued and, and how, does, how do you deal with that? Or what are, what are some strategies to deal with that? No, thankfully not. Um, you know, we, 
when we release a report, for example, we just re released a report about long-term care and home care in Manitoba. And so what we can offer is, you know, connecting the dots between what has happened, what policies have been enacted. Manitoba had some of the highest uh, deaths, unfortunately, mm -hmm. in long-term care, particularly in private long-term care. And, you know, mapping out for the reader why that happened and then what is needed to strengthen public health care and strengthen long-term care so that doesn't happen. Um, I guess where, where we do have to interject is in public conversations where we haven't had a chance to comment, where we have something mm -hmm. to say, you know, for example, in downtown redevelopment, we've been doing a report called the State of the Inner City Report for almost 20 years ago with, uh, with clinic and other groups to talk about the donut hole of downtown Winnipeg and the ups and downs, and now we're seeing a real downward turn in terms of um, social and economic um, conditions in for the people who live in, in downtown and in the inner city. Uh, but we don't often get to be part of those conversations because they're driven by business interests. So we mm. do have to, you know, keep um, politely and persistently saying, um, actually, you know, there's a lot of really important experts in the community, nonprofit sector, who want to be part of this conversation and we've documented what they'd like to see in these reports. Yeah, so many so many of these conversations are centered around narratives and the narratives that are being written with intent to obfuscate and perhaps confuse and, and plant those seeds of doubt that Cecil, you mentioned. Um, so Anne, what are some of the narratives that, you, that you're seeing around the public discourse when it comes to healthcare right now in this province and, and are they indicative of the work that you're seeing on the grassroots or are some of the narratives getting maybe too, too, uh, too general or too incorrect or are what do you see when you when you hear and see the narratives that are being talked about especially in this month leading up to the election um, is it are they accurate are they inaccurate what are some of the things that you're seeing um, that are being discussed uh, in the province right now yeah <laughs> there's a lot <laughs> it feels like there's a lot uh, and I would say at times it feels heavy and uh, sure. and particularly for folks who um, we're talking about their lived realities, right? Um, Very vulnerable states that often... Yeah, yeah, and, and often vulnerable because of systems, uh, because of racism and discrimination or socioeconomic, right? Like, there's, there's huge implications for that. Um, when I think about the narratives where it's challenging to bridge the divides and and connect that with health, so much overlaps with health, right? Mm -hmm. We talk about social determinants of health, um, colonialism, racism are, are you know right in there, poverty, uh, housing security, mental health and, and concerns with substance use and mm -hmm. the ability to access true harm reduction um, so that when you're ready and able, you can work towards recovery, but just being able to keep people alive and, and the discussions that happen around things like supervised consumption sites here in Manitoba. And um, those seeds of doubt uh, around whether they work or not is, is definitely at play. We see that often. Um, and and certainly around um, trans, transphobia and all of the, that that's happening, you know, when queer, trans, two-spirit folks uh, aren't safe and when we see a travel advisory go out uh, around folks 
being cautious about traveling to our neighbor to the south. Um, that's not so far from us, and we've seen a real rise in that kind of rhetoric here in Manitoba. And uh, and so those are the those are the divides that we have to be able to get rid of those seeds of doubt and help people to understand and come to a place of of recognizing that um, you know. It, the liberation of our neighbor is bound up in our own liberation, right? Um, and we need to make sure that folks can live their lives fully and truthfully to who they are, and that that really just makes us better as a society. Very well said. Um, Cecil, is it a journalist's job to convince the public to trust the journalism, or is that part of the outcome of doing good journalism or has that changed over the past few years what do you tell your students when 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 you're talking about trust and, and regaining the trust that's been lost and establishing trust as a young journalist just getting into the industry like what what are you saying to the to the young to the youth when they're getting into this uh, this uh, industry that's fraught with mistrust yeah I mean <clears throat> I think a lot of it comes down to how do you conduct yourself how do you conduct yourself as a journalist? How do you conduct yourself as a media organization? Um, so you have to conduct yourself with the highest standards of, ver of verification, of how you deal, how you treat sources, how you deal with sources, how you, how, how you staff your news organization. Mm -hmm. to, to Ian's point about uh, you know, their systemic racism has existed in, in the media for decades in terms of who gets hired, whose voices get heard, what stories get chosen mm. to be reported on. We, I think we are all a product of an education system that was silent on things like residential schools and, and indigenous history in our province. And, and so media outlets need to embrace the reality of our society and reflect that back to the population, um, you know, things have happened. Um, you know, I did a, I, I, I did a course, uh, I taught a course earlier this year uh, on media literacy. I th um, and, and I think there's a huge uh, responsibility on the part of media outlets and educational institutions and in other institutions in society to ensure that the public is literate when it comes to uh, consuming messages because that's where a lot of the problems originate because it's so easy for anybody these days to disseminate a message on x or facebook or TikTok or what have you um, we need to teach we especially need to teach young people what's a fact and and what is a, a, an outrageously ridiculous thing and we i think we all have collective responsibility to do that and if media organizations and other civic organizations can um, get together somehow to empower ordinary citizens to get a better understanding of that and to become more involved mm. actually directly in that, um, then I think that would that would help things out a lot. Yeah, no kidding. Absolutely. Molly, you had something to add? Yeah, I just wanted to query and maybe get Cecil's uh, take on this um, because the stat of um, having a 
less lack of confidence or trust was I think about 50%. But that means there are 50% who do have trust. Mm. And I also think trust is a big word, but to me I have uh, critical thinking, critical uh, inquiry of the sources of media I use. Um, I'm sometimes skeptical, I'm sometimes cynical depending on what else has happened that day. Um, so yeah, I guess, and you kind of got to that at the end of your answer there. Um, but yeah, talking about that balance between, you know, we do want people to be uh, critical thinkers, um, but they do also have to have trust to a certain level in the basic quality of what they're receiving, would you say? Totally. I mean, look, any, any journalist or media organization has to earn the public's trust. Um, and you know, there are many specific issues where that breaks down. Like, you know, try this as an experiment. Google sources say, and see how many news stories in the last month have used that phrase. And, and the public is getting weary of that phrase. So w when you're a journalist or a media outlet and you purport to report something, but you, you don't put in where that information has come from, um, you're going to create some distress automatically in the minds of people. Now, look, I, I've been in the media for um, way, way more years than, than uh, I care to think about. And I know that there are occasions, but there are, there are relatively few occasions where it's important to protect the confidentiality of a source. If you're dealing with a victim of some sort, or if you're dealing with someone who has a fear of losing their employment, you want to protect their... Um, identity, but way too often journalists are being manipulated by companies, uh, governments, politicians, and other powerful influences at all levels to insert things into the media. And, uh, you know, if, if journalism organizations or journalists want to increase the trust factor, they have to think very carefully about things like that. Because if you tell me something, if you say, I've got a fact here, but I can't really tell you where I got this fact, then what do you want me to think about your fact? Your CCPA reports are very good because they're very well referenced and footnoted. And uh, I want my students to, when, not, to, uh, not to ignore Wikipedia, but when they go to Wikipedia, check the footnotes and then check to see if the footnotes are accurate and get to the original source of that information. And that's how I think all people need to think about these things. Yeah, and then in this modern sort of headline-driven economy of getting as many clicks as you can, I've, I've seen so many articles that their reference is one single tweet with a guy that has 40 followers, and then they make, create this narrative that people are saying so-and-so, this and that, and that, it's just so um, warped. And yes, one person is saying that, or if it, it might even not, not even be a real person anymore. And, and you're taking a source from something that you're not even having a real conversation face to face with someone. So yeah, we're in a, we're in a new era of a, a new media landscape and it's, and it's wild. Um, so let's shift to the final question for all three of you. In your work, do you see any sort of positive trends or work that's being done, solutions to the issues that we've been talking about um, to try to improve trust in institutions and in civic engagement in your work or in friends or family or colleagues or anything? Like, what are some, let's try to leave people on a pot. This has been so much doom and gloom, but like, what are some solutions that are happening? What are some positive things that you're seeing? What are, um, 
you know, what are some trends or solutions that we can leave the people with uh, today? Who wants to start with that one? I can start. Um, yeah, so um, from the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, we often walk alongside community-based organizations and community experts in terms of documenting what is needed to improve the lives of people in Manitoba. And so, you know, that's coming back to my point earlier about um, people who are more economically insecure or feeling marginalized are less likely to have trust because um, they're in a vulnerable situation. And so addressing that means, you know, showing real progress. So, you know, there's a story um, that is important to tell here of um, a nonpartisan effort to improve shelter benefits in Manitoba. So there was in the, you know, 2000 and, uh, what was it, 13, 14, uh, have a heart raise the rates when uh, welfare was 285 a month for a single individual. And in many provinces, it is still quite that low. And community advocates worked really hard to educate all parties about this. And uh, it was actually the Conservatives who came up first to increase the shelter rate for people on social assistance to, um, you know, it was called the market basket um, measure or the... Um, Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation's um, average rent, median rent, um, and the government in power was the NDP at the time, and they responded by creating a policy called Rent Assist, which actually almost doubles people the amount people get for shelter and then follows you if you get off of social assistance. So at the time, I remember the budget scrum when it was announced, and David Northcott from Harvest was saying, this is the biggest thing that's happened in my lifetime in terms of public policy for low-income people. And so, uh, you know, it, it was costly, but poverty is costly if we don't address it. Right. Uh, you're paying either way. Um, and so this gave hope to a lot of community activists. And so there's an amazing group like the Right to Housing Coalition. I'll give a shout out to them. They're doing wonderful work. They have a social housing plan to say, you know, poverty is not this overwhelming problem. There are um, things we've done here that have been nonpartisan efforts that have improved conditions, and we can keep uh, making improvements there. And another really awesome example I want to note is the Consider Climate campaign. I don't know if you've seen those lawn signs around. Um, you know, you might remember the big uh, student movement, you know, inspired by Greta Thunberg uh, about um, action on climate that happened right before the pandemic. And then I sort of started worrying about these high school students. That, and students came out to the uh, ledge, like 10,000 people saying, we need action on climate pandemic hit, lost momentum, and these young people, you know, we don't want to show them that getting involved in democracy and civic engagement isn't going to go anywhere. Well, I see Consider Climate here in, in Winnipeg and in Manitoba um, just saying all parties use the evidence, use the science, and have a strong position to act on climate. Um, and so this group is super... Um, creative and engaged. They're doing thing on, things on Nuit Blanche. They organize a really great all-candidates debate. So yeah, those are two examples of exciting, inspiring things that um, show that people are still quite engaged and doing important work on issues that are affecting Manitobans right now. The solutions do exist. They mm -hmm. are out there. Yeah, I think that's so important to, to say because a lot of times people just feel helpless and hopeless and there are examples in other cities and in our country of people doing things that are moving the needle and, and pu putting roofs over people's heads, uh, for example. So yes, excellent point. Uh, Ian, same question to you. What solutions are you seeing in the medical field that uh, give you hope or inspire you to think that we are 
hopefully moving in the right direction, if anything. <laughs> oh, it, I think there are. I think yeah. absolutely. And I think that's, again, one of the beautiful things about working in community health and, and being able to work with different community organizations and, and organizations like CCPA Manitoba is that we get to see um, sometimes have the privilege to be a part of uh, some of that great work that's happening and honestly the solutions community knows what they need um, and so that's that's where I think the power is quite frankly is we just need to find ways to walk with to listen and remove the barriers so they can do what they know they need to do for uh, individuals and communities to thrive and we there are a lot of examples of that I think um, you know there the there isn't as much money um, there as uh, you know corporations and and others who may be you know trying to maintain the status quo um, because uh, that's that's how they maintain their their power and their privilege and their wealth um, but you know, seeing some of the shifts even that the Winnipeg Foundation is making in terms of how they're going to be changing their investment model and working collaboratively within, a, you know, an inner city community. Uh, and I, I think that the collaborations and the collective action is really uh, key to it. And, uh, and yeah, we've seen lots of examples as, as Molly spoke about. Yeah, walking with walking with, we, we say it in, uh, in our offices upstairs, nothing about us without us, right? Like nothing about a, a certain or, um, population without having a dialogue and, and going back and forth and making sure we're walking together. Uh, last word to you, Cecil. Uh, I, obviously, manipulating the message, your new book coming out in October is going to be one of the That's solutions. That's the solution. That's the solution. <laughs> but what else are you seeing? What, what other solutions um, in the journalistic you know, uh, industry? There are. I, I think there are some positive things. Uh, you know, uh, about 30 years ago, um, there, there was this famous quote about uh, freedom of the press. You know, someone said, freedom of the press belongs to those who own one. Mm -hmm. uh, that was in the era of print journalism where, you know, the barrier to entry was gigantic. Uh, how do you compete with the Globe and Mail and the Toronto Star in 1990? Well, you have to buy, a, you know, a printing press <laughs> from somewhere. Well, we all know that uh, through the Internet, uh, the means of distributing news and anything else is has fall uh, is quite simple, um, and and a lot less costly. And there ha so there have been a lot. Even though even a lot of conventional journalism has shrunk with layoffs and newspapers closing and so forth, there's a whole raft, dozens and dozens of new startups, and some of them are quite exciting. Like, there's a controversy going on right now about the green belt in Ontario. Mm -hmm. The lead reporting on all of that was done by the Narwhal, yeah. which which didn't exist a few years ago. And mm -hmm. if you think of the TAI and the National Observer, and uh, there's a whole bunch of new journalism organizations that are filling the breach that has been left to some extent um, by some of the mainstream media that have that have shrunk. I, I see that as a positive development. They're also doing more investigative journalism, which I've devoted a lot of my career towards and a lot and again often it's it falls by the wayside when when times are when when budgets are tight but uh, some of these startups are engaging in that because in terms of media i think we need a lot less press release type journalism and a lot more investigative work whereby you you hold the powerful interests to account with facts 
but it's hard to get at those facts without investing a lot of time and effort. And, and I think the last thing I'd say is that um, there's a crisis right now about will, the, will a lot of the media even continue to exist in Canada because we all know Facebook, Meta is blocking news at the moment. So, you know, first we've all been hooked on social media uh, and, and when I ask my students, where do you get your news from? Uh, like nine out of 10 say from my phone. This mm -hmm. is where I get my news from. They don't subscribe to a newspaper and they don't watch the evening uh, supper hour or, or news at 10 p.m. or 11 p.m. And so w now that everyone is reliant on these devices to get their news, now we have uh, one of the biggest players blocking news. What are we gonna make of that? So I think, Government has a role to play here. Uh, um, we can debate the merits of Bill C-18, which is the government bill that is designed to force Google and Facebook to negotiate with news organizations to compensate them for all the advertising revenue that they have hoovered up from media outlets over the years. We can debate the merits of whether it's good or bad legislation, but I think what's important to recognize is governments have a role in ensuring that media continues to exist in this country, that they have a role to ensure that it's well-funded and that it doesn't die, which is an actual um, I, I hate to bring it back down to a potential downer, which, which is a, a p possible threat um, through some of the measures that we're seeing play out right now. So I think if the public wants to get engaged on that, they should become more familiar with some of these pieces of legislation, I think, that are out there right now and how some of the big social media players are reacting to them. Thank you, everyone, for the conversation. We could talk for hours. Uh, your time is very valuable, so I Thank you so much, Cecil Rosner, adjunct professor at the University of Winnipeg, Ian Wilcox, executive director of clinic, and Molly McCracken, director of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives in Manitoba. Thank you for your time. This has been an honour to have you on episode one of, of uh, YX Matters. Um, so thank you very much for being here. I very much appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.